Welcome to Unexpected Points. I'm Kevin Cole coming at you solo today. Today we're going to discuss a review of the Thursday night game, somewhat similar to what I did last week. I got some good feedback on that, except I'm going to dig into a lot of concepts of grading and PFF grading. It may come off as a little critical of how we do things, but I'll explain in there the context there and how difficult the process is. Um, But this is more of a way for you to think about grades and how to adjust based upon uh, what you're seeing on the field and what may be coming up in our grading. I'm also going to talk about all the different games this weekend, go through most of them, although I'm not necessarily going to hit all of them, try to give some high-level points on each, some context from the stats that we saw, the advanced stats in week one, and also dig into the quarterback rankings piece that I had that came out this week. That piece not only gives you some context on how players played in week one, looking at their numbers, looking at their performance under pressure, looking at the performance on third down and late downs versus early downs, but also looking at how sample size affects things. And I think that's important when we're judging quarterback performance. And I think it's going to be an interesting way of looking at, you know, X player had this efficiency versus another player had another efficiency. Well, if one player threw the ball a lot lot more, uh, we should give them more credit for that efficiency. But before we get going, I want to give a shout out to all the other podcasts here at PFF. For those who don't listen to the forecast with George Shahuri and Eric Eager, I suggest you do so. Two analytics guys talking about the state of the betting world. We have the PFF Daily Betting Podcast. We have the newly named Tailgate Podcast with Mike Renner and Austin Gale, which not only gives you some college information, but also goes over the pros. And then, of course, we have the Fantasy Football Podcast with Ian Harditz, where if you guys are playing fantasy, and I assume nerds listening to this podcast are you're going to find all your great information there and of course if you get a sub to pff you're getting all the great information the stats uh, that i'm going to be discussing here on the show the grading i'm going to be discussing here on the show and more to get information and context on that and one one more that i'm going to hit before i get into it and that is fan tracks for those who don't know fan tracks is a new fantasy football platform we did a league here at pff uh, unfortunately i had uh, some some injuries already <laughs> that have derailed some, some of my performance there. But I did start Brandon Cooks in week one over Elijah Moore. So props to me on that. Um, so what are you going to do? You go to fantracks.com slash PFF. You can sign up a league there. You can transfer over everyone there. They have innovative uh, and useful and very user-friendly interface. They have player salary and contract options. You can auto-generate salaries. You can do bonus TDs for different yardage. You can do a bunch of different stuff there. Once again, that is fantracks.com slash PFF. All right, let's get into Thursday night. And I'm going to start by talking about grading here. And the reason being is that I, like most people, I'm kind of going to go through my process, my post-game process, looking at some of the grading here. So I think I was a little surprised, as some other people will be, the fact that Daniel Jones at least as of now. And I believe these grades are, are locked in. Um, we'll see if they, if they change at all. But as of now, at least, has a 90.7 passing grade. And if you look at what we've seen so far, right? If you look at so far this season, what we've seen for any player and any week so far this year, that is the second highest grade versus what we saw from Tom Brady in week one in that kickoff game where Brady was graded in 92. So, you know, I thought Daniel Jones was good, but that seemed a little bit too much for me, right? And from then I can dig into here, we have some information that I can dig into kind of on a play-by-play basis and try to get an idea of, okay, where might things be a little bit different on the grading than how I would look at them? And of course, I would look at them in a lot of my process. You see, I bring expected points added into the process, right? And the reason in doing so is I think it helps bring together some of what could be missing in, in the grading. Now, one of the primary things that you have to think about when you think about our grading scale is on a play-by-play basis, it goes from negative two to positive two, Okay. And even when we're talking about negative two to positive two, so that's nine different options. So it, you know, you're saying, well, there's some gradation there, right? So you can get a somewhat accurate view on what happened on a particular play because 
you can you have those nine different options. But the reality is, and I think this is a fair way to approach things, the reality is that you don't necessarily want to have too much subjectivity or too many choices for the people who are doing the grading. We have multiple people doing the grading. We have a rubric for how things should be graded. But if you're going to tell a player on this particular pass play, there are nine different ways you can go on this. It's going to be hard to do. So what what we've done is, and I think it's a smart option, is the extremes. If you look at what happens on the extremes, uh, it's pretty narrow. Narrow versus if you were looking at a normal distribution, this is not a normal distribution of grades. The default is very strong here. The default of saying this should be a zero grade is very, very strong. And when you get further out, there's there are some that are in the 0.5 category that are some that are in the one category, either to the negative or positive, but there are very, very few that get to negative 1.5 and two in either direction. So again, you have very thin tails here, uh, a very high center. If you're looking at a distribution here, uh, they call this kurtosis. It's not a normal distribution. This is, there's, there's positive kurtosis and how tall that it is in the center. So that's something to always think of. Um, I try to transform some of that when I'm doing some of my Bayesian analysis, but it's something to always think of because there are going to be plays more likely than not in one game, in a small sample, there are going to be plays that are graded zero, which you may think should go a little bit either direction, just because there is such a strong gravity towards zero in our gradings. Now, one of the strongest places that this happens is in sacks. And I think I've talked about this before, where generally, if you're looking at the disconnect between player grades and EPA per play, often it's players who take a lot of sacks have higher grades than you would than their EPA would indicate, and vice versa. Players who don't take a lot of sacks may not be getting necessarily as much credit as you would have thought. I think the other um, biases, if there are some, is that there's a bias towards those those outside outcomes. Because so few times we are grading plus two or minus two, so few times we're grading plus one and a half and and minus one and a half that when those do happen, um, especially I think mostly so in giving credit to these big time throws that we have, those are throws that are generating more EPA than doing your job and and making normal throws. But um, the amount of EPA they're generating versus a normal pass is smaller. The differential is smaller than it is with how it shows up in our grading. So we're gonna talk about Daniel Jones here and what happened in this game. So he took four sacks here. Uh, Again, this is what I wanna dig into immediately. Now, I think it's fair, like I don't think it's wrong to say that none of those sacks were his fault. And we did not grade any of those sacks as being the quarterback's fault. We have a measure on here where we're gonna say, um, you know, how many of the sacks were, were the quarterback's responsibility. And it's tough because if you think about it, Daniel Jones is average time to throw here. And this includes um, holding the ball, whether it's on scrambles or holding it all the way to to the sack point. His average time to throw in the game was about 2.7 seconds. So it was pretty fast. And if you look at the individual plays when he took sacks, we uh, we have one play where it's fast. His time to pressure is only two seconds. And I don't know if people may not remember this one, but it was a... RPO type of play where there was a safety or maybe it was a slot corner, probably slot corner blitz that came in and Jones took a sack very quickly. So that one, you know, I kind of get it. Uh, but there are other plays if you look at his time to pressure, 3.1 seconds, 2.6 seconds, 3.4 seconds. And then the actual time that he took sacks on these, 4.2 seconds, 3.2 seconds, 3.5 seconds. So none of them egregious, but all of them were rated zero um, according to our grading. So the thing is, like on each one of these, you could proportion something to Daniel Jones. It's not that it's his fault that the sack happened, but he could probably at least get rid of the ball a little bit faster than what he had done um, and then not avoid a negative play, not avoid an incompletion, but avoid taking the sack. But none of the plays alone really met the bar for saying we can put this on the quarterback but because it's it's almost like a binary decision on whether or not we're going to give something a zero or not Um, but all of them 
should have had some proportion probably that went to him. And the reason that I'm saying that too is, you know, these are big value plays. If you look at the most, the biggest impact plays, one of them was a negative three EPA on a sack that Daniel Jones took on third and seven, right? Another sack he took, um, we lost another one in EPA. And then another sack he took where we're looking at another two that he lost in EPA. And then another sack he took was another two in EPA. So if you start to add these up, you know, two, two, four, another three and a half, that's, that's seven and a half, another one, that's eight and a half. That's eight, negative eight and a half. That's way, way more than any play during the game. The biggest play, the biggest single EPA play in this game was a negative 4.6 on that Taylor Heineke interception. Um, so we're talking about that one play is a 4.6, whereas if you add up all these Daniel Jones sacks, the four sacks that he took, it gets up to closer to eight. Um, so again, we're not digging in for that, but the EPA, that number will show up much, much more significantly. So that's the first thing to think about. Another thing to think about in the grading is, and again, this is not really a problem with the grading. It's just a small sample issue where over a long, long enough sample, you'll get a mix of different types of drops. I'm going to talk about drops here, but in a smaller sample, again, we're trying, you're trying to make a binary decision where you're going to say, was this a drop or not? And the giants were credited with, I have three drops here. It might be four drops, but I think it was three drops here during the game. And if you watch the individual plays, one of them was a somewhat high pass to Kenny Galladay where he got his hands on it. So maybe he could have made the catch there. That was considered a drop. There was the infamous play deep to Darius Slayton, where I'm a little bit more um, sympathetic to Slayton not making the play on that because I feel like he was running so hard. And when you're running that hard and extending that far, it's difficult to catch the ball. He really went all out for, for, for that type of play. But again, we're, we're crediting that with a drop because we can't say, oh, we're going to give him half a drop. And even if you could say that, you say, well, why don't you allow half a drop? So, well, then you're bringing more and more subjectivity and less potential uh, for there to be a uniform way of grading into this. And over a long enough timeline, you know, these are going to, to even out. It's just on a game-by-game -game basis, we don't necessarily see it. And the last drop, I think, was a slant to Darius, um, no, a slant to Sterling Shepard, where it was a little bit behind him but he could have made the play. You know, it hit him in a way where he got his hands on it and he could have made the play. So again, we have three drops from Daniel Jones. I think we graded two of them as a positive 0.5. So we gave him credit, a pretty good credit, though those would be like very above average plays. If we get to three plays, they have two, two um, plus 0.15s would, would make it pretty high. Um, so we're giving him credit for that while all the drops were not, I don't think 100% the receiver's fault. I mean, for instance, I was watching the Jacksonville-Houston game and there was a third and medium play where Taylor, um, where Trevor Lawrence hit DJ Chark who stopped and was sitting in the zone, you know, right in the chest, you know, where, but it was in the hands in front of his chest and the ball hit the ground and that was a drop. I mean, that was as close as you could get to 100%, whereas these were, you know, plays that receivers should make but it's not as easy as saying 100% credit or, or no blame at all on some of these things. Um, but also what I think was interesting in the context here is that, you know, Jones, if we want to look at what happened overall in the game, he was under pressure 53.5% of the time. So I do think that's another thing where Jones can invite some of that pressure sometimes with maybe he's not, doesn't have the highest level of awareness. And then that can translate through. Cause if you look at last year, you know, his EPA per play basis, he was near the bottom of the league, but in his grading, he was in the, he was in the teens, the, the late teens for us in grading. So there was a disconnect there. And I think maybe he's the type of player who gets a little bit more credit in our grading than what EPA is going to show generally at the same time, he had a huge run and I don't think we give enough credit to run. Obviously he doesn't even show up in the, in, in the passing grades, unless it's a scramble. Um, and that was really some of his most impactful plays during the game. He averaged one point per design run, and he had six design runs during that game. And of course, that includes the fact that there was a holding call where it would have given him e even more on that one particular play. Um, okay, the other decision I want to talk about, something that may be a little bit of disconnect with our grading, and if you're looking through there, is when you look at Heineke on this one, in the same way, if you're going to look and say, okay, well, how did, um, how did Heineke play, Right. So if you look up his grading for, for last night, you, you might be a little bit confused by the fact, I think not that he played poorly, but it was a 75.1 grade. So that's a high, high grade. That's a good grade. And the thing that might be the most confusing about that is the fact that 
it shows zero turnover worthy plays. As I mentioned earlier, the most impactful play of the game was the interception that he threw where he was targeting Terry McLaurin. And then James Bradbury came in there, got a jump on the ball and intercepted it. Now, not only was it a 4.6 EPA play, which is bad, um, but it wasn't on a first down, so it wasn't even worse. But if you're looking at the impact from a win probability standpoint, uh, I'm going to bring together a couple of different measures here because we have, um, I I don't want to go 100% based upon our win probability model because it's hard sometimes. Uh, especially in these late game circumstances to make sure that you have the right, the right figures. So for, depending upon which win, win probability model that you're looking at, it's going to be somewhere between 40% or it's going to be even worse. And the loss that, that our win probability model has it is almost 50%. Okay. So um, and the other one probability model that I'm looking at is the great Ben Baldwin's website. If anyone doesn't know about this, it's got maybe not the most inclusive name here, but it's RBSDM, which I believe is short for running backs don't matter.com. It has box scores for all the different games and it produces EPA and um, win probability numbers. So I would say generally, if anyone's looking on that site, his numbers are lower in, in the degree for, <clears throat> for EPA and normally lower in degree for win probability. So maybe a mix of the two is good. So this is a 40 or 50% negative play. Now we ended up taking away the turnover worthy play there. And the reason being is if you watch the play in, in rewind, I asked, um, I asked some people about this, what, what happened there. If, if you watch the play, you know, McLaurin was knocked off of his, his route. And when, when he was going there, he was kind of knocked off of the space So again, it's one of these plays where you're grading it on a play-by-play basis. You're not trying to think about context when you're grading on a play-by-play basis because that's entering in all this subjectivity. If you're saying to yourself when you're grading on a play-by-play basis and you're saying, oh, well, this is, you're up by, you know, a point, you don't want, turnover is the worst possible thing. The win probability is so huge on a play like this. It's a 50-point win probability, um, and you're entering that into your grading of that one particular play, that's a lot to think about for a grader who's doing this. And if you ask every grader to do that on every single play, it would just be too much to do. So they're just grading that one play based upon the fact that, yes, it was a bad play, but we're not going to rate it all the way to turnover-worthy play, which is a negative one or more, because of the fact that the receiver was knocked off of his roof and was knocked off of his spot and wasn't able to come back to the ball where if that happened, maybe it could have been better. Now I'm, you know, I don't know if I agree with that fully, but that's the thinking behind it. And again, um, it's one way where when you have to make these decisions on one particular extremely impactful play in that one particular instance, you can't necessarily uh, capture all the context, even if it is on grading from there that you would expect to do on a play like that. Um, Now I'm going to talk about some situational stuff that happened in the game. Um, But before I do that, I'm going to, uh, I want to talk about Western and Southern financial. Uh, The unexpected points podcast is sponsored by Western Western and Southern financial group. While you focus on your football lineup, Western and Southern can help you figure out your financial game plan. Their playbook of life insurance, retirement and investment solutions can help meet your needs. So you can rest assured on game day. They'll help you understand your needs and focus on your financial goals with a custom plan just for you. Visit westernandsouthern.com to get started. Okay, so let's, let's talk about some of the game management stuff in here because there was some stuff. Um, first off, there was a fourth and two from the five-yard line that the Giants had. Uh, the full situation here was there's four minutes and 12 seconds left in the second quarter. Uh, there was one timeout for the Giants, three for the Washington football team. Not sure that matters a whole lot right there. And it was a tie game. So Joe Judge chose to kick the field goal there, which I thought, I thought was interesting. And people may have seen this on the, the uh, again, I'll mention Ben Baldwin and the bot that he had come out there. Again, this information is all available on his website, rbsdm.com, runningbacksdontmatter.com. Um, he only had that as a slight go for it. He only had it at a 0.6 win probability gain. 
And the reason being, you had a success rate on going forward at 44%. Now, I think that success rate maybe is a little bit low. It might have had to do the fact that it's looking so poorly upon the Giants' offense. Because if you think about a success rate on a two-point conversion, which, again, is you need to get two yards, right? A two-point conversion is higher than that, generally. It's more like 48 49%. And that's a more difficult play because you are um, – a few yards closer to the end zone. So that, that seems a little bit off and maybe that's what has to do with it. If you look at our numbers on this, we got a pre-snap win probability of uh, 51.3% and that win probability drops with the field goal, uh, the made field goal down to 49%. So we see that as being a negative. So that's another area where we're a little bit different than what uh, ben Baldwin's bot here and his fourth down bot had to say here. And we also have the chance of probability over 50% as opposed to him being at 44%. So I think they definitely should have gone for it there, but there's some confusion and maybe it isn't the, the most obvious situation there either way you look at it. Uh, another part about this though, that's really interesting is it actually lends back to a concept that Ryan Paganetti talked about on the last podcast which I liked quite a bit. And I think there's more room to use this in the NFL, which is if you're in a situation, right, where, again, they're on the five-yard line. So let's say this was more like fourth and four or something where it really made it more of a, a coin toss situation, even if you believed in the analytics, right? And you went by the analytics all the time. So, and then you decide, you know what, we're not going to go for it here, depending upon what you would still do though, in this situation is because you're on the five yard line and you're so close and you don't care if you lose five yards kicking the field goal, because your success rate from the five yard line, if you're kicking a field goal is about 98%. If you move back from to the 10 yard line, it's going to go down to, I don't know, 97%, maybe 96%. It's very, very, very small, right? But if you convert, you get a huge bump up on your on your conversion rate. You get a huge bump in your win probability. So what you would do in this situation is go ahead and line up like you're going to go for it. Even if you know you're not going to go for it on one of these quasi calls, if you're if you're close to the end zone, and then it try to draw them off sides. And then if you don't draw them off sides, don't burn the timeout. I think that that becomes a problem, especially in the second half where timeouts are more valuable. Don't burn the timeout. The five yards is worth losing five yards is less of a negative impact than losing the timeout in a lot of these situations, especially end of half situations. So go ahead and take the five yards because the upside that you could have gained by drawing them off sides and converting the, the, the fourth down is much, much greater than the downside of having a little bit longer field goal. Now, the problem is, and this is interesting because I was discussing this on a spaces that I did last night. I was talking with, uh, with Brendan Leister, who's a, who's a Browns guy, and he came on to the, to, to the spaces. And I was discussing this concept with him, and he's done some coaching, and I think this would be really hard for coaches to buy in on it because of the negative reputational impact slash regret that would come into this. Even if you knew moving back, let's say in the situation for Joe Judge, even if you move, knew moving back from the five to the 10 is still a gimme field goal, if you miss that field goal after taking the, that five-yard penalty, the announcers, well, even taking the five-yard penalty, the announcers would be like, what are they doing? Why didn't they call a timeout? Not really understanding the fact that the timeout is worth more than the five yards uh, and not really understanding that the five yards moving back in that situation doesn't matter. But if you miss it, everyone is going to lose their shit, right? Everyone is going to be blaming you on it, despite the fact that reality is probably would have missed it anyway from, from a little bit closer in, right? You're not really affecting the outcome that much. So I think there's going to be a lot of regret aversion. And I talked about that in a podcast a couple, couple of months ago about how that drives a lot of decision-making, not necessarily risk aversion, but regret aversion. So there's going to be regret aversion here in, in doing something like this. But this was a situation where they could have tried it. And I think generally the NFL probably needs to think a little bit more about how can we leverage things like taking penalty yards to give us more upside on the on the other side of it, right? Uh, that comes in a lot of different ways. It comes in something as simple as, and I think we've seen this more, is like t being willing to take more offensive pass interferences in order to free up receivers. That could be more of a thing, even more of a thing, saying, you know what, it's worth taking the penalty um, if we can get this explosive play or if we can convert this third down that's a low probability third down conversion. Um, and, and many other things like that that we can think about, especially the five yard penalties that we could think about uh, whether it's worth taking those or not um, in order to to not really affect the win probability that much 
but give yourself more of a chance for an explosive play on offense or a big play turnover on defense. Uh, So that was the first one of the decisions that I probably, I was against according to our numbers, more of a toss up according to Baldwin's numbers. And then another one that got a lot of hype was not going for two when the um, Giants were up by six. So I think that there were two different incidents where they could have done that. Uh, One of them was with, let me get the exact information here. Uh, Third quarter, 441 left in the third quarter, and they decided to kick the extra point. Interestingly here, again, for Baldwin's numbers, he actually has kicking the extra point as being the right decision because he doesn't have much of a win percentage differential between being up, if you made it, up seven versus up six. He only has it 67% versus 65%. Uh, Safe to say our numbers disagree a little bit on that. Uh, We had it that if you're going to kick the, um, if you're going to go for the extra point, we had that as being I'm sorry that you should go for the two point conversion in this, in this circumstance. If you look back at the seminal, I would say go for two article, which is written by Benjamin Morris a number of years ago called when to go for two for real. You could look that up on it's a 538 article. He has the situation and he has some nice plots on there where it goes through the, the proportion of the game and how the situation changes where even in the third quarter, he has this as being a go for two situation, unless you're extremely low in your conversion rate there. Um, but then the fourth quarter and we get later into the fourth quarter, it, it's almost off the charts by how much you should go for two there. And I think that's the one that I want to look at more than anything else. And if we go down, let me just get the information here on that one. And if we get, go down to figure out, you know, what should they have done there? Well, you know, they end up trading a bunch of field goals later on, and then they never were able to go get over. And they left that situation in the end where they could end up losing by a point. Um, so it wasn't maybe as much of a sure thing that they should have done it as people think, but it ended up being something that they, that they should have done. And, you know, they ended up losing. So it's a kind of a, a, a results-based take here on that. Um, another thing that happened, and I think this is one where there's probably a little bit of a disconnect here where this was the punt on fourth and nine that the giants did. So the giants, they punted on fourth and nine near the end of the game. If I looked on my good old Twitter, I think this is something I quite commonly see where this mistake for the right call versus the aggressive call. So it was fourth and nine. There was 321 left. The Giants had all of their timeouts. So when you need a full nine yards, you really got to think about that versus thinking about this is not a fourth and two. This is not a fourth and three. This is not even a fourth and five. This is a fourth and nine. You have all three timeouts. You have three and a half minutes left to go. You have Taylor Heineke you're going against. Now, you didn't know you're going to get the interception, right? I'm not saying that. But you still have a situation where you have – a team that's going to be incentivized to potentially be conservative and punt the ball back to you. You, if you get the ball back, you only need a field goal, right? So you don't have to march all the way down the field. Um, So you have all those things working towards you. You have the two minute warning left. You have three timeouts. You have four potential places to stop the clock. Also Um, the conversion rates on this for, according to our numbers is more like a 30 something percent conversion rate. And again, that's hard. Um, If you look at, our numbers, it's not a gimme to punt it, but it is a slight favorite to punting it, where the pre-snap win probability is about 29%. The If you punt it, it's about 34%, so you gain some win probability there. Now, the win probability ended up going way up on this play because it was a 53-yard kick with no return. So that's that was huge. That ended up boosting them all the way up to 41%. So they end, ended up gaining about 11% in win probability on that punt. And... If you look at Baldwin's numbers on that one, he was saying that was also a situation where you should punt. But again, that was one of the most confident things that I saw people on Twitter saying is the fact that it was such a bad call to not go for it in that situation. And I think like the, the one the one thing people don't quite account for enough is the conversion, how much the conversion rate goes down on those longer situations. So could they have gone for it there? Yes. People are way, way too overconfident talking about that there. 
And the last game management thing that I'll talk about is timeout management. And uh, Ron Rivera made a mistake here where it didn't end up really costing them in the end. He had a good, he had a good choice later on, but the mistake that he made was if there is, okay, if you're trying to, so this is when the giants had the ball, there was a little bit over two minutes left and he was just calling his timeouts one after another, even though there was a, there was only, you know, two fifteen left on the, on the, on the clock. And you don't do that if there are too few seconds left before the two minute warning, because you open up a couple of different things. What they ended up opening up here was on the actual field goal itself, the two minute warning was burned, right? Um, But you can also open up the possibility to allow the other team to pass the ball, because if you call a timeout, let's say there's 203 left on the clock, you call a timeout. Now the other team knows on this next play, the clock's going to stop no matter what. So they say, hey, you know what? I can throw the ball on this down or run it, right? Um, But it opens up throwing the ball because you know the clock's going to stop either way. So once it gets down, maybe even under 215, but definitely under 210, do not call a timeout. If you're the other team after a run play or when the clock's running, you go ahead, you let that run down, you lock in the two-minute warning because you don't know you're going to get that two-minute warning, right? It's not of your choice. You don't get to choose like you get to choose on a timeout whether or not the clock is actually running when the two-minute warning hits. Lock in the two-minute warning, then start calling your timeouts again after that. You don't give a free passing play to the other team. You get you, you get one extra timeout in your pocket when you have the ball going forward. Uh, he did make a good play, though, on deciding to call a timeout if people watched it before the third and five, which they eventually converted because with 27 seconds left, because you didn't want to rush that play, number one. Number two, you couldn't spike it, obviously, because it's third down. You didn't want to take fourth down before getting some additional yards. And the next thing is it would have been really easy and you would have been ready to go where even, even if you even if you didn't get out of bounds on the conversion, you can run up there and spike it because you have a new set of downs and you're OK. Uh, so that was a good use of the timeout, not waiting to call the timeout before, right before the field goal, because you had the spike. You were either going to, it's either going to be an incomplete pass and you weren't going to convert, or it was going to be complete pass inbounds. You had time to spike, or it was going to be complete pass out of bounds and you have time to kick. So th- that's basically what ended up happening, except for they went out of bounds and they had one more chance to complete a pass and spike. Uh, so good and bad for, for Rivera there, but that's an important thing. If you ever see a coach calling a timeout when they're trying to stop the clock, they're down at the end of the game. Don't call that timeout when you only have 10 seconds or so, uh, left before the two minute warning. Okay. Before I go over the other games here, important thing here is our next sponsor that you can definitely use forward for this weekend. And that is DraftKings. Uh, week one may be over, but the season is just getting started. DraftKings is giving new customers $200 in free bets instantly. Head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place one bet of $1 on any week two game and receive $200 in free bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use promo code PFF to receive $200 in free bets when you place $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana. 1-800-9 with it. All right, let's hit the rest of uh, the week one schedule. And like I said, I don't know if I'm going to hit every game here, but I'm going to hit some important ones and some context that is probably needed here. Um, okay, so let's start with the early games on Sunday. Pittsburgh, Las Vegas. That's a pretty interesting one. It's five and a half point spread. Uh, 47 over under. So the implied numbers are, are decent here. We implied total of 26 and a quarter for Pittsburgh and then 20 and three quarters for the Raiders. Now the Pittsburgh offense was bad. That was just a bad game. Uh, Roethlisberger looked pretty similar to 2020 Roethlisberger, which is not good. Uh, their running game was awful. The upside was that Najee Harris played literally every snap. So if you own him in fantasy, you're hoping in matchups like this. If he doesn't produce in this matchup, there's going to be a lot of problems going forward. Um, I think last game against the Bills, he only had half a yard before contact. He was only averaging half a yard before contact. So it was really, really difficult for him. 
they had, but you know, the, their, their run efficiency wasn't as bad as you might think. Well, actually it was pretty bad. It was a uh, 22nd, but it could have been worse. Uh, who's even worse here? The, the jets were even worse. And but their defense was great. They had a top 10 defense against the Bills. They shut down the Bills. They didn't blitz much, which I think that'll change against uh, Derek Carr because Carr gets rid of the ball so quickly. He's a very, very different. It's almost on the opposite end of the spectrum quarterback from uh, Josh Allen because Josh Allen holds the ball long, but still avoids a lot of these big negative outcomes because of how he's able to move in the pocket, how he's able to uh, shed sometimes would-be sackers, and how he's able to have decent gauge of how long he can hold it sometimes versus others. Carr is going to get the ball out quickly, and he was looking for Darren Waller a lot. Although at the end of the game, we saw how Brian Edwards became involved, and I'm going to hope that would turn over to, to the, the following week. So I think that's going to be an interesting matchup for the Raiders. It's going to be Brian Edwards. He's the guy that I'm going to look at to see whether or not he can sustain based upon what he did last week. Because, you know, if we look at <clears throat> If you look at Henry Ruggs, I, I mean, this is the Raiders draft picks. It is some of the harshest results that I think we've seen from all of these different first rounders in a long, long time. And if you look at what happened with Henry Ruggs in week one, he had he had five targets, but only had two catches. And that was that one long 37 yard catch other than that not much at all going on there so really hard uh to see that type of results for the former number two number 12 pick first receiver taken last year before justin jefferson before jerry judy before all those guys um next game carolina new orleans you know i think carolina is a surprise surprising team and their offense was pretty good it was heavily reliant upon christian mccaffrey but he just looks so good and i think joe brady does such a good job of scheming there he looks so good he made a fool of cj mosley and the linebackers and the the underneath guys for the jets last week he was pretty much open and he could convert anything that he needed to there they ran a lot of concepts where they were getting screens for him where they had guys out blocking swing passes where they had guys out blocking for him he had a 20-something percent target share. He was way, way up there. I think that'll continue, and that's really going to help set a floor, I believe, for, for Darnold and what he's going to have to do. Joe Brady is helping set that for him. And not to mention the fact, of course, he's got DJ Moore. He's got Robbie Anderson. But Robbie Anderson could be the guy. I know people talk about this relationship with Darnold that he has, but he could be the guy who actually suffers the most with Darnold there because he's just not going to – he's not pushing the ball down the field nearly as much as you might think. Um, if you look at New Orleans, you know, the Jameis show. He was number one – um efficiency quarterback as far as uh his play-by-play grades as far as his epa per drop back and when we talk about my bayesian quarterback rankings though he doesn't show up as number one because he only had 24 plays that he was involved in and not only that he had some pretty high leverage fourth down stuff that they picked up that he was that he got kind of lucky well not lucky but relatively lucky yeah right um, so he wasn't involved that much. And I think that's an important, important factor there. And they had the best defense in the NFL. So that's gonna be interesting to see how against the pass last week and overall against green Bay. So it will be interesting to see how they can win here. If they can win this game, they're only a three and a half point favorite in Carolina. If they can win this game. They really put themselves in a very interesting position, um, because green Bay is playing against the Detroit lions on Monday night. So that's a W coming there. Um, but if they can, if they can, get this win here um, they're going to be ahead of maybe some of these second tier teams when we talk about competing with the bucks as being the the big dog in in that in that conference okay next chicago cincinnati so the most interesting thing about cincinnati last week was their pass rate above expectation well maybe i should say the opposite their pass rate was below expectation was way below expectation in that game uh despite the fact that it was a close game and that there was, you know, they're playing right until the end. It wasn't like they had a huge lead or anything like that. It went to overtime. So there was a lot of different plays that they happened there. Joe Burrow only was involved in 32 plays in that game, which is on the low side. And he was okay. He wasn't great. He had some big, he was helped with big plays. So I think that could be a little bit concerning as to whether or not that will, that will continue going forward. And he had the big play to Jamar Chase, of course, that was semi-blown semi coverage that, that we saw there. 
Um, and Joe Mixon was, was very involved. So that'll probably continue going forward. Now the bears, we haven't heard yet that we're turning to Justin Fields. I think they should just do it right now. I mean, this is it. You're a three point favorite. You're at home against the Bengals next week. They're going to go to Cleveland. Um, I don't think it matters. I mean, whatever I put them, put them in there against Cleveland. Um, but this is really a big, big chance here. If the bears do not win this game, I think hundred percent have to turn it over to Justin Fields. I would not be surprised if they're losing the game if Justin Fields comes in in the second half here. I think Fields is going to play way, way before um, Trey Lance, at least as the starter. I mean, Lance is being has potential to be mixed in, of course. And uh, so this is the game where I think it really, really could happen. Um, again, but there still are a three-point favorite against the Bengals. So let, let's, not, let's not get too crazy here. Okay, so the next game on here, Cleveland-Houston. I mean, they're 12 and a half point favorites. This is the biggest favorite that the Browns have been since 1999. They have an implied total of over 30 points. And the only thing to be concerned about with the Browns, and I went through the game uh, earlier this week and why they played better. And if it wasn't for the Nick Chubb fumble and the muff punt and all that sort of stuff, they play better. The only thing I'd be concerned about is that their rushing efficiency was just so off the charts that it was not in the area of being sustainable. Some people may have seen it. I shared shared it on... um, I shared it on Twitter and it was probably my most popular post of the week, which was showing the rushing efficiency where it's like every, every other team is in this, uh, has this relationship between their success rate and their efficiency. And then way out on the end is the Browns um, where they're a little bit better on success rate than most teams, but their efficiency is through the roof. Um, This is excluding the fumble because of the fact that they got the fourth down conversion for the touchdown, the Nick Chubb longer touchdown where he just ran off, um, you know, off tackle and there was no one within five yards on either side of him. So that's not going to continue going forward. They will be a successful running team, of course, but that's not going to continue going forward. And I don't think there's any reason to worry, of course, about this Texans game, but this is a must win. I mean, this is a must win for the Browns at home versus the Texans. They're going to be at home against Chicago next week. So I think these are two almost must win-ish sort of games back-to-back at home for the Browns. Uh, Indiana, LA. And LA, by LA, I mean LA Rams. This one... I think the most interesting stuff that I got from the Colts in week one was the huge target share that over 20% target share. Both of these guys were in the top five for Naheem Hines and Jonathan Taylor. And while that's good for these guys, fantasy wise, I'm not so sure this is great for the Colts offense. And so people were talking about why this happened um, well, maybe it's just a scheme thing. I think there's a potential for that. But if you look at time to throw, like when Andrew Luck got into this scheme, his time to throw went way, way, way down, right? And he wasn't taking any sacks. Now, the time to throw here for Carson Wentz was 2.8. So that's above average. So he took more time to throw than you would think. He was actually had the, wait, one, two, three, four, five, had the sixth highest time to throw uh, against the Seahawks. He had negative 8.2 EPA in sacks. He, you know, fumbled the ball, running the ball. So that wasn't also good for his performance. But I think it's concerning because you're thinking about what's the upside of this offense. They're throwing it to the backs a lot. They were down a lot of that game too. They're not stretching the field. Who do they have who's going to stretch the field here? I think Paris Campbell is really a guy that I'm going to watch there. Can he use that speed to get down the field after being this kind of slash player in college and never being able to get right with his, with his injuries um, in the NFL? We, we, I think the, the, um, the Colts really need more out of him. Because if you look at Wentz historically, he had this thing where obviously his performance in 2017 was fluky with the third downs and all that stuff, but there's been a pretty strong correlation with how well he's done versus whether he's had a legitimate deep threat. It was Torrey Smith that he had for a while there in the games where Deshaun Jackson played on the Eagles. He did very, very well. And then if you look at this team here with the Colts, like who do they have? Who's going to do that? Michael Pittman is uh, an underneath sort of guy. They have the, the backs who they're throwing it to a lot. You know, who's the guy who's going to play that role for the Colts who can get downfield and be an option, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know who that's going to be. And I think that's a problem for the Colts. If you can't turn 
Paris Campbell into that guy. Um, Zach Pascal, if he's going to continue to be your number one receiver, it's it's just going to be tough. It's going to be tough for for them, and it's going to be tough on how they have the upside. Now, on the other flip side of the equation, everyone was you know Gaga over uh, Matthew Stafford, and I think some of that was the Bears' defense and their problems there. Uh, some of that was the fact that yeah, Stafford can do some things that Goff can't do, right? He has a huge arm and he can make those throws. But again, from their perspective, I'm not sure who they have who's going to be the real field stretcher type to take advantage of that. In week one, you saw Van Jefferson who caught the long pass. And that was more of like you schemed separation as opposed to the fact that he was going to be, he was a guy who just, you know, can create separation in a way that some receivers can um if you look at his information for let me let me get his combine results because he was an old guy you know he was like 24 years old when he came out i guess he doesn't have well no he doesn't really have any combine results here for his for his speed but it's not good right um i don't think he's a he's not a burner by by what i've seen about him in the past um but he didn't test so, so i could be wrong about that you know, they brought Tutu Atwell, barely played. Uh, Deshaun Jackson played some. So I think they need to involve Deshaun Jackson a little bit more. I'm a little bit more dubious on whether or not Tutu Atwell is going to turn from a guy whose average depth of reception is final year in college was, you know, a couple of yards, whether he's going to turn into that downfield threat. And the other long pass, of course, they had to Cooper Cup was really a blown coverage. I don't care what Dan Orlovsky says about uh, Stafford manipulating people with his eyes it was a blown coverage so who's going to be the guy who can consistently get downfield so Stafford can take advantage of what Stafford does because I do think there's a possibility that when he throws the ball more often in a little bit more difficult circumstances uh, some of the downside could come into Stafford's play again he's a guy who was only involved in 28 plays in in week one so he's not that high up uh my rankings he's seventh so he's not low um, but he's lower up the the week one quarterback rankings than you think based upon his performance because he had the the low sample size there okay so the next game is jacksonville denver okay so denver's a six-point favorite despite being on the road teddy bridgewater ended up being the number one quarterback in my quarterback rankings with a caveat of the fact that he performed very well on third down so we'll have to see about that going forward uh, they faced a Giants defense, which now looks a little bit more vulnerable after allowing Taylor Heineke to move the ball pretty well last night. But they have a strong defense themselves. The Jacksonville implied total is under 20 points. Uh, I thought Trevor Lewis and Lawrence looked okay, but there were a lot of mistakes going on. There were some bad drops. There were 45 yards and penalties, their first few drives. Uh, and then he had three bad interceptions uh, for, for Lawrence. He had some good throws, but the interceptions were ugly. Um, it, but if you look at the offense, they did pretty well running the ball, but they did not do well passing the ball. And then if you look at the defense for Denver, that's going to be one of their strong suits, right? It's getting pressure. And that, and that Fangio defense, as far as how they can confuse things and mix up coverages and mix up their looks there. Um, but again, like I said, they had a top five offense passing the ball and the reason that Bridgewater made it up to the top of my rankings is because he had 41 plays that he was involved with versus Winston at 24 and guys like Stafford only at 28 um oh yeah KJ Hamler I'm, I'm just going to keep on hoping for KJ Hamler and I just want to see how much he's going to be involved because he was out snapped by Tim Patrick in week one so now with um jerry judy out for a number of weeks hamlers in the three receiver sets he might still be out snapped by patrick but i want to see how involved he could get he dropped what would have been a long touchdown although the pass was behind him from teddy bridgewater miami buffalo this is a big game this is a huge game this is like low-key maybe the most important game of the weekend when everyone's going to be concentrating on baltimore kansas city and that is because buffalo lost week one miami won um, against the Patriots by a single point. Miami, so if Miami wins this game, they're going to be 2-0 in the division. They're going to be 2-0 overall. Buffalo is going to be 0-1 in the division. They'll be 0-2 overall. Um, also, 
they'll have the tiebreaker, which eventually will be decided if they play Buffalo again, right? Buffalo will need to win in the future to get to get to get back to come close on the tiebreaker. But again, the divisional record, boom, the Miami is going to have that that lead in the divisional record already. Buffalo's only a three and a half point favorite. This is looks like it's going to be a decent scoring game, but not a super high scoring game with a 47 and a half total. And it's really going to be can Buffalo get back on track. Allen is going to have to avoid mistakes in this one because that's how the Miami defense is going to try to manipulate things. You're going to see pressure. You're going to see blitzes. You're going to see zero coverage. You're going to see that stuff. So is Buffalo going to adjust its game plan where it went wide a lot um, against a very different defense with the Steelers where they were able to get pressure with their front four? Um, So it's going to be a very different defensive situation. I just want to see how everything's going to play together. From the Miami side of things, I want to see if Jalen Waddell can build on what he did last week. He had the touchdown. He was playing a lot of snaps. Will Fuller, I think it was just announced that he is out due to personal reasons. So Waddell should be playing a lot there. Uh, Waddell didn't have that strong of a preseason. He wasn't the greatest guy in my numbers as a prospect, but there's so many players there that they were competing with at Alabama. All first-round picks, right? We're talking about four first-round picks were all on the team at the same time a couple of years ago when Waddle wasn't very involved. That's a hard situation to be in to get looks, no matter how good you are as a receiver. So I'm interested to see how, how he's going to be utilized and whether or not he can build on the momentum of being you know, probably the second-best receiver, right? Um, from week one, as far as his, his performance, actually, you know what? Devonte Smith is probably the second best, but whatever. He did all three of those guys, Chase Smith and Waddle did, did really well as rookie receivers in week one. Okay. Jets versus Patriots. The Jets was an interesting situation because the Carolina defense, which I think could be better than, than we think uh, they sacked Zach Wilson six times. It was hard. If you look at the Jets, their pass protection grade was one of the lowest of the year. Um, Makai Becton is out, obviously, but he wasn't good. He was getting beat a lot. Um, even before that, uh, they were bringing pressure that Wilson had trouble diagnosing. Sometimes, other times, guys were just getting straight up beat. They couldn't run the ball at all. If you look, they were 32nd in the NFL in their running efficiency, and you think they would have been able to do that for the fact that they weren't really passing so so hot either. Uh, they were 27th in passing, which included some some bad turnovers. But I think there was some positivity for Wilson, this is kind of fuzzy stuff, but he was able to evade the rush multiple times. He shows this kind of twitchiness in his pocket movement and how he's able to get outside. I mean, there was a couple of times where at least one time with, with Brian Burns just had him dead to rights. Brian Burns came off, beat his guy. There was no one else there. And Wilson gave him a inside outside fake and was able to roll out and throw the ball down the field and almost hit a huge gain to Corey Davis. So there was almost a huge gain to Davis. There was almost a huge gain to, to Elijah Moore, who only had one catch for a negative three yards. So very disappointing game for him. There was almost a huge gain there where I think it was like a offensive and defensive pass interference combined in one, but the defensive pass interference was holding down Moore's arms where he could have caught a 50 yard ball. Both of them were these flicks that Wilson had. So he showed, all the talent that they talked about there. The problem is the surroundings, they're going to need to get better, especially on that offensive line. And if you can't run the ball in this system, this Shanahan system that, um, that uh, uh, Matt McCarthy brought in, it's going to be, it, they're going to be some issues. So that's what I'm looking to see there. They're playing against new England. They're a five and a half point underdog, kind of a must win for new England here. Again, they lost to the Dolphins when they vastly outplayed them week one, but they had the fumble issues. Uh, Mac Jones is the best rookie quarterback there. So this is a situation where the Jets have the lowest implied, tied for the lowest implied total at 18 and three quarters points. It's only a 43 total. So that defense needs to needs to come out here and stop the Jets. Um, but it's going to be at home for the Jets. So must win-ish sort of game for the Patriots already. Or they'll be 0-2 in the division also. Uh, Philly, San Francisco, Philly. I'm a, I know a lot of people love what Jalen Hurts said. He's high in my quarterback ratings. His grading was pretty good. He still had an average depth of target of three and a half yards. So let's not get crazy. And the Falcons are the Falcons and the Falcons did not put much pressure on the Eagles offensively, right? They, they, they didn't, they weren't scoring much. And if you looked at the trenches, there was just such a huge advantage to Philly in the trenches. So that's what I'm going to be looking at more than anything else. Now they're playing against a Niners team, which was able to run the ball basically at will against, but it was against Detroit. They were able to um, 
hold Detroit down for most of the game. Their overall numbers aren't looking so good on defense because Detroit made that big comeback, but I think you can discount a lot of that. They were extremely efficient throwing the ball with Garoppolo. I know Garoppolo keeps on doing this thing where his efficiency is way better than his grading, but it happened again. So I think here it's really going to be, does that trench match up? Does it, did we see what we saw in week one where Philly was able to dominate on both, on both um, with both units, the offensive line and the defensive line? Or is San Francisco going to be much, much harder of a matchup? They're a three and a half point favorite in Philly. I think things could be a little bit more difficult for the Eagles here. As much as I love Jalen Hurts, um, he didn't have to do a whole lot in that last game as far as pushing the ball down the field and making, making you know pinpoint throws down the field. And they were able to run the ball well. So it kind of everything that was surrounding Hurts was, was perfect in that game. And that's not necessarily going to be the case against uh, the 49ers. And for the 49ers, Brandon Ayuk, God, let's talk about that. He's playing behind Trent Sherfield. Okay, so Shanahan is starting to get, I'm not going to cancel Shanahan, but he's he's been low-key showing himself as not necessarily being a great decision maker for a while now. Um, I mean, he took over in 2017. We can go all the way back to 2017 here. So when they took over in that first draft, it was a mess. Okay, they made a decent move, but I think it was mostly uh, uh, Parag Marte, who's the uh, who, who's the the guy who's been around forever as far as the GM helping the helping the GM now. But he's been a high level guy. They're negotiating those trades. They made a nice move on the Trubisky, you know, trade down to get some assets there. But immediately they said if the Bears were moving up to take Solomon Thomas, um, right with that that number the number three pick that the 49ers were willing to go ahead and draft Reuben Foster with that number three pick remember they got him for the as the 31st pick and of course he had all these issues afterwards but even still they were willing to take a player at three that was available at 31 so you have that they had a player, Jonathan Williams, I believe was his name. Let me just make sure I'm getting it right here. Where, because it's such a generic sounding name, where he was off the board and then Shanahan said, no, 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 it's not Jonathan, Joseph Williams, who, who Shanahan said he was off the board, right? Shanahan said during the draft, no, I want to, I, I want to draft this guy. And they ended up trading up for him and drafting him in the fourth round from off their board. Not great process there, Right. Uh, the Jarek McKinnon signing was another guy Shanahan just wanted that they went after. We have Dante Pettis they traded up for, and now he's no longer on the team. He burnt out there. So you see these comments from Shanahan with Brandon Ayuk. They traded up for him, and now he seems to be in the doghouse. The whole Trey Lance versus Mac Jones thing, and, and you know Adam Schefter is really sticking to his guns that they initially wanted Mac Jones, and that's why they traded up to number three. So again, they were trading up. They gave up multiple first round picks in the future to trade up for if it was for Mac Jones for a guy who would was available at 15 who ended up going at 15 who would have been available if they didn't trade up at all um and Trey Lance you know who knows where he would have gone right if he didn't go if he didn't go there he probably would have gone earlier than uh Fields and Jones but we don't know for sure where he would have gone there so again process over and over and over again of Shanahan maybe being a little bit reactionary and what's going on. And it sounds like here with Brandon Ayuk, this is a guy who was extremely productive as a rookie. I mean, anytime you get hundred targets, anytime you're that good, I don't care that Debo Samuel and George Kittle weren't playing sometimes, you know, he's excellent. He's saying that he has to be much, much better than the guys in, in behind him in order to see the field more. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't know if he's going to get Dante Pettis out of town because he had a much more successful uh, rookie season, but Low-key, I'm starting to wonder about Shanahan is whether or not maybe he does fit better into this mold of a guy who should be like the Uber offensive coordinator that you just pay a ton of money to, but you don't necessarily turn over the keys for the decision-making type of stuff uh, when it comes to these things. So anyway, I I might be reading into this way too much, but those are just thoughts that I had of what's what's going on there. Um, Arizona versus Minnesota, Arizona. I'm still not buying their offense yet. Kyler was doing a lot of Kyler things. They did have the 13th best offense, 11th best dropback offense. So pretty good. 
but Tennessee could just stink on defense. So I think this Minnesota game will be a good challenge for them where Minnesota was okay. Not, not great, but um, as their defense against the Bengals, but I think they they were pretty good. So I don't have a huge, you know, spiel to give off on this one, other than the fact that I'm still looking at that Arizona de- uh, offense skeptically as whether or not what they can produce without Kyler working magic, which isn't always going to happen. Tampa Bay, Atlanta, 12 and a half points. Don't really need to talk about that. That's, you know, should be a, a destruction. The only thing to look at on that one is Matt Ryan retirement watch, I think is, is something to really look out at. And you, then you start to really wonder about when the Falcons had that number four pick and they could have used it on a quarterback instead went with Kyle Pitts. If Matt Ryan is just, if he's dust at this point, uh, cause he looked pretty dusty against the Eagles in week one, although I admit he didn't have great protection. He's not going to get a lot of help there against Tampa Bay. So Chargers, Dallas, this is, I mean, this is huge, 55 and a half points. So this is the game that everyone's going to be talking about in DFS. The implied totals are 29 and a quarter for the Chargers and then 26 and a quarter for the Cowboys. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see how Dak's arm is going to look here. I thought his arm was a little compromised despite the fact that he played so well in week one. I'm interested to see whether or not Justin Herbert targets Austin Eckler, since he didn't target him a single time before that. I'm interested to see how that target distribution is going to look on Dallas with the fact that Michael Gallup is out now. Uh, luckily on my home league, I have Dak, I have Mari Cooper, and I have CeeDee Lamb. So I'm all in there. So I'm, I'm happy about the thin target distribution there. I know no one cares about your fantasy team, but I'll just, I'll just mention that. And for the Chargers, you know, I think... Herbert looked really good. He had a couple of fluky plays where he lost early down EPA. And that gave this huge disconnect between his late down and his early down EPA. The Chargers converted a bunch of plays that maybe they shouldn't have. I talked about this on the last pod. So, but I think Char- but Herbert himself looked, looked really good. I thought there was a really good analogy that Steve Ruiz had when they were talking about what Herbert looks like as a quarterback, that he looks like those robots that you've seen that can shoot the ball from half court. Uh, he, he looks like a robot, like a, like a laser throwing quarterback robot and how he's able to complete those, uh, you know, those deep out patterns to the opposite side of the field. Okay. So next is Seattle, Tennessee. This is really just going to be, I mean, it's not must win for Tennessee, but cause they're five and a half point underdog in Seattle, but it's going to be rough for them to be down. Luckily the whole division stinks and Seattle you know, they had a couple of big plays there. So I want to see how DK Metcalf can get more involved in this game. I think that's going to be important for them and whether or not this is going to turn into a running affair. I'm kind of surprised by the total on this at 54, because I feel like either team, if they get a lead and five and a half points is not the closest thing. I think either team is going to lean on the run a decent amount. If they get a lead, uh, Russell Wilson, how many plays was he involved in week one? Let's see Wilson 31. So really he wasn't involved that much. And if you look at, the passing or running over expectation. Of course, they were winning a lot of the time. They were 3% over expectation. For, well, actually, no, according to my numbers, more like 5% over expectation. And then if you look at Tennessee, they were still 9% under expectation, 10% if you count third downs and they're under expectation for their pass percentage. So they were not passing the ball much, despite the fact that they were getting, they're getting beat down pretty hard. They should have had a much higher pass rate than they did. So I think this total might be a little aggressive here, and it could be a little bit low, lower scoring than what we're seeing there, uh, being that it's given the third highest total of the weekend. Um, but maybe people just assume the Tennessee defense stinks that badly. And then the last couple of games here, Baltimore KC, I don't have a lot to say about this game other than the fact that Baltimore did not look good against uh, the Raiders. I thought they were a little being a little patronizing to Lamar Jackson sometimes when he was completing, you know, checkdowns and they were, and the announcers were giving a little too much credit for that. They really need to turn that passing game around. We'll see against Kansas city, Kansas city can be all over the place. They, I think they missed Matthew and maybe to a lesser degree, Frank Clark in week one. So with those guys being more involved, we'll see what ends up happening. Um, but again, you're going to hear about this ad nauseum and I'm sure I'll end up reviewing it next week. And last game here, Packers, Detroit must win, obviously for the Packers here, 10 and a half point favorites kind of surprised it's not higher than that. Although 10 and a half is a lot of points. Um, I think Detroit, you know, they had that Dan Campbell willed them to come back 
and maybe some people are a little bit worried about Green Bay, but I wouldn't be surprised if um, this is such a smashing victory. And I think Aaron Jones is probably a guy I'm really interested in from a fantasy perspective there. He had a decent split with Dylan. He's gonna need, they're going to need to get this offense kicking and going because you're kind of expecting Jones to have that outlier efficiency and if he doesn't have it. And I'm interested to see if John, DeAndre Swift will continue to be used maybe in like a Camara type of role out of, out of the backfield there, which could be very profitable in PPR leagues, even if they're not scoring a lot of points. All right, that's it for me, guys. Thank you again for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying getting this in your podcast feed two times per week. Yeah, do some rating and reviewing on, on iTunes if you have the chance. I'd really appreciate that. I'm getting some good feedback on everything here. I'll be coming at you again on Tuesday next week with Ryan Paganetti. Everyone have a great weekend and enjoy the NFL football. 